Good morning. <clears throat> Glad that you're here. Happy Thanksgiving. And uh, not doing a Thanksgiving sermon uh, as most of the time I do during the holidays. I'll do a sermon connected to something with the holiday. But since we're in the middle of our series on Revelation and have been for several weeks, I figured we'd just continue it instead of taking a break and, and uh, trying to pick back up later. But I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be covering uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 today, talking about the seven churches of Asia. Do you have a place that you call home? I'm sure that you do. And it may be that the place you call home is not even the place where you live. Uh, I live in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. But when I think about home, I think about western Kentucky. I haven't lived there since I was 11 years old, but still to this day it is considered home to me because that's where I have the most family connections, that's where I have a lot of memories. Uh, it just seems that Western Kentucky and home fit together the way that I think about it. But maybe it's possible for us to think about a place that we call home and it's a place that we've never even seen, a place that we've never even lived but we know that it exists. We know that it's there. I've never been to California, for example. But because I know people that live there, and I know people that have been there, and I can see it on a map, I believe with all my heart that it exists. As a matter of fact, one of my classmates in my prophet's class is, lives in California. He preaches in California, and so I get to interact with him uh, every week. And he lives in a place that I've never even seen but I know that it exists. On Sunday evenings, I'm doing a, a, a series on my trip to Israel that I took a few months ago, and I'm showing you pictures of all of that. Some of you may have never been to Israel, but because you believe in Scripture, and because you are able to see those pictures that I took, and you don't think that I fabricated those, and I'm not lying to you that I have been there, that you know that it exists, and it's a place that maybe you can visit too. Sometimes we can call a place home, but we've never even seen it or never even been there. That's what Revelation 2 and 3 does for us. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, John basically describes home for the Christian. Now we may not have seen this place yet, but we hope to in the future. We hope for it to be not just our home that we get to visit, but we hope for it to be our eternal home. Where we go, we live, and we dwell, if you'll allow me to use this terminology, forever. But what does that place look like? When we think about these two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, there are a lot of things that we can do, a lot of ways that we can go about talking about these different churches and the things that they dealt with, the things that were in their future, whether it was suffering or persecution or their heavenly reward. I've chosen to look at these different things, these different churches, and identify some things that remind us of home. And so basically, throughout this lesson, I'm going to ask you the same question. When you think about home, what do you think about? And some of those same things that we may connect our earthly homes to can be connected to our heavenly home as well. And so let's get right into the lesson because there are several things for us to talk about. And we can't spend as much time on these as I would like to. But think about this. When I think about home, I think about trees. 
When I think about my home in western Kentucky that I grew up in, there was a tree in the front yard that had a tire swing connected to it. And I can remember uh, uh, swinging on that tire swing. And I can remember when it would come a big rain, the tire would fill up with water. And I'd have to dump that water out before I swung on it so that I didn't get wet. I think about two trees that stood in my front yard uh, right close to one another, but I had a blue barrel tied in between those two trees. And I would sit on that blue barrel and my dad would shake it back and forth and I would practice riding bulls on that blue barrel tied between those two trees. When I think about home, I think about trees. And John wants us to think about trees when we think about our eternal home. In chapter 2 and verse 7, John says this. Actually, this is Jesus saying these things, but John is just writing Jesus' words. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. If you'll skip over to chapter 22, the passage that was just read for us a second ago, we want to emphasize verses 1 and 2, what it says about this tree of life. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." And so we're obviously not talking about a literal tree. Heaven is not a, a, a physical place. It's a spiritual place. But you've got this tree of life there that we can eat of, and it's got 12 kinds of fruits on it. You may wonder, when we read this 12 kinds of fruit, why 12? Well, in the book of Revelation, 12 is the number of spiritual perfection. You may know from the Old Testament that there were 12 tribes of Israel that made up God's people. In the New Testament, there were twelve apostles that Jesus groomed and would eventually preach about the kingdom, establish the kingdom, and grow the kingdom from Jerusalem to Rome. Sometimes in Revelation, next week we're actually going to be introduced to a group of 24 elders taking multiples of that spiritual number 12 and putting them together. It's the number of spiritual perfection. And so why are there 12 kinds of fruit? It's because we are going to be perfectly taken care of spiritually for all eternity because we get to eat of this tree of life that's only found in the paradise of God. We first read about this tree of life in Genesis chapter 2. In the garden, God put the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. As a matter of fact, He told Adam. Adam should have communicated the message to Eve, but apparently he didn't or she didn't get it clearly because she was tempted by Satan and she ate of that tree. And she gave some to her husband, Adam, and he ate of the tree too. And because of their sin, they were banished from the garden and a cherub was put in front of the midst of the garden, in front of the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life lest they eat of it and live forever. When we think about home, we also think about trees. But there are some things that we have to do just like the Ephesians have to do 
in order for them to have this tree of life be a reality for them in their future. They have to endure false teaching. And I want to talk about this because one of the biggest questions about these two chapters specifically in this book is, who are the Nicolaitans? I don't know. And it doesn't really matter because all of this false teaching is connected to one another. You've got the Nicolaitans popping up in in verse 6. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 talk about the false teaching and they're enduring it well. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. And then the Nicolaitans are mentioned in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They're enduring this false teaching well. Not everybody does. Because in the church at Pergamum, we have the Nicolaitans mentioned again in verse 15. We have the teaching of Balaam in verse 14, that same chapter, or that same church, I should say. And then in verse 20, you've got the teaching of the woman Jezebel. This is obviously a nickname of the Old Testament woman Jezebel who was the wife of King of Israel Ahab and led him into idolatry. And so you've got all of this false teaching and it seems to be connected. There's sexual immorality that's connected to it. There's idolatry that's connected to it. But it all comes back to one primary source. And that source is given in verse 24 of chapter 2. And verse 9 of chapter 3. In verse 24 of chapter 2 it says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. In verse 9 of chapter 3, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Everything's connected to Satan. I like how these people are teaching the deep things of Satan. They think they're teaching the deep things of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul, when he's talking about inspired teachers, whether it's himself or somebody else, he says that they are able to communicate the depths of God because the Holy Spirit's leading them to communicate those things. These people claim to be teaching those things, but all they are actually teaching are the depths of Satan because it's false and it's leading people away from Jesus, away from the church, away from their spiritual security, away from their eternal home. The Ephesians do well at this, not so much with others, but we have to endure false teaching. We also have to renew our love for God and keep it intact I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but this I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand or your candlestick from its place. In other words, if these Ephesians didn't renew their love, Jesus was going to make sure that they ceased to be of His people. It's a lot like a marriage. Sometimes it can be very difficult to keep the love 
fire and the same passion as you had it on your honeymoon. That's what marriage is about. Year after year, trying to renew that love, trying to keep it intact. It's the same way spiritually. Sometimes it can be very difficult to remain on fire for God and in love with our Savior the way that we were from day one when we obeyed the gospel. But if we want this tree of life to be in our future, to be a reality for us eternally, we have to renew for God daily. Not just when things get in jeopardy, but daily. When I think about home, I think about trees. Also, when I think about home, I think about crowns. Think about a trophy. If you go to my mom and dad's house right now, you go upstairs, you're going to go into the game room where the pool table is, but you're also going to see on the wall all my trophies from when I was in Little League. Soccer Little League trophies, my trophies from Little League basketball, all those things are still going to be there on display. I don't know why mom kept those things and why she still has them to this day, but you may find trophies in your home. Well, here is a trophy that we need to keep in our future. What's interesting about the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia have something in common. Neither one of them are condemned for anything. We want to be a church that Jesus can be Smyrna and Philadelphia. Study those two chapters, or those two churches, and figure out what they were doing. I think we'll be well on our way. But in verse 10, John says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is a trophy, if you will. It's our crown that we give, that we get whenever we've endured everything that Jesus asks us to endure, that the world throws at us. But we need to be very careful about this trophy or this crown. Just because we are given given a, a trophy or a crown because of our faithfulness does not mean that we have earned it in any way. It's kind of like... Winning at the games. Smyrna had these Olympic games that people would try to do everything they could to win those games and they would be given this crown at the end of those games. It was a crown of foliage that would not last. But that's what they were working for. It was their reward. They earned it. And maybe Jesus has this in mind as He's communicating this message, but it's not something that we earn. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about having to discipline his body. There were days when Paul would wake up in the morning, he didn't feel like doing ministry. Maybe he was sick, maybe he didn't feel too well, maybe he just did not want to have to endure the struggle on that particular day. I don't, I don't really want to get made fun of. I don't want to get beaten. I don't feel like going to jail today. I want to eat a good meal. I don't want to go hungry. Sometimes Paul did not want to endure the struggle, but Paul said, I discipline my body lest I be disqualified. Paul knew that if he didn't endure the way that he was supposed to, that he might lose his salvation just like everybody else. But he did it so that he could win the crown of life. Just like James talks about in James chapter 1 and verse 12. 
We endure, and when we endure, we are given the crown of life. But what do we have to do in order for this crown to be a reality? We have to make sure that we don't measure riches by our circumstances. In chapter 2 and verse 9, Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation. I know your struggle. I know your persecution, your circumstances. But you're rich. Perhaps their tribulation or their persecution, their poverty, was perhaps those two things were related to one another. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read about a group of people that at one time, they were more than happy to have their possessions plundered for their faith. Over in chapter 12, it says, You have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood, Hebrews chapter 12. But there was a time when those Christians were more than happy to let people take their possessions because of their faith. They knew that their salvation that they had from the Lord was more valuable than any material possession that they had in their home or had in their pocket. And so they were willing to go through struggles and tribulations to make them physically impoverished because they knew what true riches were all about. And perhaps... We have been there before. Perhaps we have not had our things stolen from us by the government or anything like that, but perhaps we have had to go without from time to time because we knew what was most important in our lives. It's all connected to our home. Not our earthly home, but our eternal home. When we think about homes, we probably need to think about crowns or trophies. When I think about home, I also think about bread. I don't know what kids, what all kinds of kids eat for snacks today, but I used to eat cinnamon toast. Anybody else ate cinnamon toast? If you don't know what cinnamon toast is, basically you take bread, you put butter on top of it, you dump a bunch of cinnamon and sugar on it, you put it in the oven, and you eat it, and it's good. But I did not like the crust. And so I used to eat a lot of cinnamon toast when I was a kid, but since I didn't like the crust, I would tear the crust off and I would stack it up on top of each other on the plate. And I've got this cinnamon toast crust tower about this tall. I can remember it like it was yesterday. When I think about home, I think about bread. Now, manna is not entirely bread that we know of, but it's the best thing I think that we know of to connect it. But in verse 17... It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What was manna all about? Manna was all about God providing for the people of Israel everything they needed at that particular time. When they were hungry, God gave them manna. Every day they woke up and there it was. Except for the Sabbath, of course. But why did He do it? In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, Moses says that He gave you manna in the wilderness that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that God was the one providing for your needs. In other 
words, basically what Moses says, Israel, you've been able to have a blessing that nobody else has ever had before. Even your fathers, nobody knows what it's like to wake up in the morning, walk outside your front door and see all this food everywhere on the ground for you just to pick up and gather. God's never done that for anybody else except for you. But He did it so that you would know, not only so that you would have something to eat, but so that you would know the one who is really taking care of you and providing for your needs. See, manna is all about sustenance. In heaven, we'll have everything that we need. In our homes, we'll have everything that we need. It's not about having everything physically, but it's about God providing for us the things that we truly desire and that we truly need. And that's spiritual sustenance. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days before He began His ministry didn't eat or drink anything for those 40 days. And so Satan tempted him with something to eat. Turn these stones to bread. Satan knew that he could do it. Jesus knew that he could do it. But Jesus refused because that wasn't what was most important at the time. Endurance was more important. I think about home. I think about bread have to do in order for this bread to be a reality? Well, we have to hold fast even while living in Satan's kingdom. If you look in chapter 2, there is something said about Satan's throne in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my, uh, deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What's so interesting about this place that makes it Satan's kingdom? I don't know. I do know that Pergamum was a place where a lot of altars of Zeus and Asclepios stood. Asclepios is the god of healing. The God who provides, the God who protects, perhaps. And maybe that's connected to this whole bread idea and the things that we need to survive. Maybe you've seen the the big stick, the big rod with the snake wrapped around it. That's basically the image for Asclepios. But also in Pergamum, there was uh, the, the center for the emperor worship cult was in Pergamum. The center of emperor worship in Asia was there in Pergamum. And so perhaps that's what's being communicated. I don't know exactly. But they seems like they're living in Satan's kingdom. But they have to remain faithful to their God and to their Savior if they want to eat from this bread of life, from this hidden manna that's only made available to God's people. When I think about home, I think about bread. Also, when I think about home, I think about authority. Growing up in my home, it did not take me long to learn who the authority was. And I'm not talking about dad. I'm not talking about mom. I'm talking about my father above. We didn't just go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. If there was a gospel meeting going on somewhere in the area, we were there. And it wasn't that mom and dad left and said, y'all don't tear the down while we're gone. We'll be back in a few hours. Oh no, we went with them. And we didn't have a choice. 
If it was a singing going on somewhere, that's where we went. That was the authority in my house. I can remember saying something I shouldn't have said one time. And my dad sent me to my room and I'm sitting there on the bed ready for the pain to come because I just knew I was about to get a whooping. But instead, dad opened the door after a few minutes, threw a Bible on the bed, and he told me to read. He wanted me to learn that what I did was not wrong because he set the rules, but what I did was wrong because God had set the rules. That was the authority in our house. And in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says this to the church in Thyatira, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. We rule with a rod of iron over the nations. And I think we understand a little bit about what, about what that means. It's tough. It's, it's an authority that is, is not easily broken. But what about the earthen pots breaking those? Well, it's going to be an easy reign for us over the nations. It's not going to be something difficult, something that we have to struggle through. It's something that we're given immediately over the nations by Jesus Himself. And it's something that we'll understand the ease of what we're having to do, of what we're having to go through. In Psalm 2, the Bible says that the Messiah, our Savior Jesus, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so we rule the same way that Jesus does. How do we do it? We have to get stronger spiritually over time. In verse 19, it says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. It wasn't just that they were good today. It wasn't just that they were strong today and a few weeks ago. They were strong today and stronger tomorrow and then even stronger the next day. And that's what it takes to have the authority that our eternal home has to offer. Next, when I think about home, I think about clothes. I've mentioned to you before that my dad built the house I grew up in in Kentucky, and we lived in the basement while he was finishing the upstairs. Well, one day we were, he was working on the upstairs. The floor was not down yet. It was only the, the, the insulation was there. But I was walking around in the bathroom, kind of straddling the joists. Well, I slipped and I fell through that floor. And I landed on the dryer on the washing machine. On the bottom floor in the basement. And I thought about that whenever I was developing this lesson. Because what happens with clothes? Clothes get dirty. They have to get washed. Sometimes we have to put some kind of stain remover on them to remove the stain. But what is the garments that we are given? In verse 4, Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Why white garments? What does white represent? It could be several things. It could just be purity, a reference to purity. It could be a reference to heavenly garments. A lot of times in the Bible we find angels appearing to people here on earth wearing white clothing. 
it could be a reference to victory. Generals that have been given victory over different nations or something like that. A lot of times they were paraded through the streets wearing white clothing of victory. But it's white garments. And white garments that never have to be washed. In Revelation 7 and verse 14, there's an interesting image that's depicted. It says, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said... Uh, to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What happens, happens if I put a white shirt in the washing machine and dump a bunch of blood on top of it? Turns red, some kind of shade of red. I tell you what, it doesn't remain white. But our garments that we are given are white when we receive them and they remain white because they're, they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. What do we have to do in order for these clothes to be given to us? Well, our attitude has to match our actions. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know, you will not know, excuse me, at what hour I will come against you. You've got the reputation of being alive. Jesus said, but you're dead. Everybody in the community thinks this congregation's got it going on. Perhaps they have a giveaway day. They give away to people in the community. They talk about Jesus in the community. Everybody knows who they're connected with. And they have the reputation, but their heart's not in it. Their attitude does not match their actions. If we want to go home and receive these white clothes that never wear out, that are never soiled, that never need washing because they're already washed perfectly in the blood of the Lamb, then we have to have the attitude that matches the actions. I think about home. I think about names. We used to have nicknames for everybody in our home. I don't know if it was that way in your home or not. But that's kind of how it was with us. And so I think about names when I think about home. Chapter 3 and verse 12 says this, The one who conquers, I will give him a pillar, and I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. What will this name be? I don't know. We're not told. But I do know that it identifies me with God as His possession. And nobody can rob me of that. Nobody can question who I belong to. It may be that in our world today, somebody questions who we belong to. You're a Christian? Well, I saw you have an attitude the other day that you probably shouldn't have had. I saw you get angry about something the other day. We're not perfect. And because of our imperfections, sometimes people may question whether or not we wear the name of Christ. But in this home, nobody will question it. We will be made to belong to 
uh, to God because of the name that we have been given. We want this name. We have to keep Jesus' word steadfastly. As mentioned in verse 10, we'll just go ahead and read it and then move on. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance or steadfastness, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And finally, when I think about home, I think about furniture. In chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, The one who conquers I will grant to sit, with, uh, to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. At home, when I was a kid, I had my chair. It was a little tiny recliner that nobody could fit in but me. Remember Goldilocks and the Three Bears? She sat in the third chair because it was just right. Well, that's how this chair was for me. It was my chair. Maybe your dad had the chair. He had his chair. Nobody else could sit in that thing because it was his. Well, Jesus has his throne. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Nobody else has the right to sit in it. But what does he do? He scoots over and he lets us sit in it too. In home or at home. When I think about home, I think about furniture. What do we have to do in order for us to make this furniture, make this seat a reality? We can't be content with simply being an average Christian. What do I mean by that? And you look at verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some translations will say vomit you out of my mouth. That's too strong of a word here. Spit is better. But some people have kind of wondered what this is all about. Well, it may be that the water had high sulfuric content. And so when you tried to drink it, it didn't taste very well. So people would spit it out. But also think about this, Laodicea did not have its own water supply. It had to pipe in water from Heropolis a few miles away. And Heropolis had these hot springs. And so when you pop in this hot water from, La- from Heropolis, a few miles away going into Laodicea, by the time it gets there, it's not hot anymore, it's not cold, it's lukewarm. Nobody wants to drink lukewarm water. And so basically Jesus is saying that your spiritual life is just like this lukewarm water that nobody wants to drink. I don't want you to be that way either. They're just simply average. Sometimes we hear people say, I just want to be a Christian. I understand what people are saying when they say that, but what do you mean by that? Do you mean that I just want to be different? Do you mean, I want to worship correctly? Or I want to be a person that reads my Bible regularly? What do we mean by simply just a Christian? Whatever it means, it means that we cannot be average. We have to strive to be better every day. Because in heaven... In our eternal home, 
we're being given a reward that's not just given to people that are better or average. We're being given an eternal home that's given to a special group of people that are different from anyone, anything, anybody that we come across in our world today. Christians are not just average people. We are special people. And we must act like it if we want this home to be in our future, to be a reality for us. When you think about home, what do you think about? Sometimes people will say this, home is where you hang your hat. And what they mean by that is wherever you are, just feel comfortable with it. Don't tie yourself to one particular location or particular city or place. Just if you have to move around from place to place, just feel comfortable wherever you are. Hang your hat wherever you find yourself and make that your home. I understand that philosophy and I get it when we're talking about our worldly lives. But with our spiritual lives, we can't think that way. Spiritually, home is not just where we hang our hat. It's a place that God has prepared for each of us. And it's a place where we don't move around. We don't go from place to place. We are there for eternity. Never has to be repaired. Never has to be put on the market. We never have to move. We're there for eternity. That is home. Is home in your future. Home's given to a certain number of people who are faithful to God. Scripture will support that. But it may be that we're not living our lives the way that we should. It may be that we've gotten caught up in something that we should not get caught up in. Some sin of the world or some type of frame of mind. And we need to change some things about our life. If that's where you are this morning, make the change today. Don't wait another second. It may be that you've committed sin and you want to ask for forgiveness and prayers from your church family. Let us help you today.